Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. Yeah, so I think let's just kick it off. And maybe, James, if you want to give a background of who you are, where you've been, how you've got to where you are. Yeah, yeah, sure. So, I mean, firstly, thanks for having us on board to, to do the po- podcast in uh, in the first place. But uh, I think dialing back to, I, I suppose, how I got involved with, with crypto in the first place is, is really back at the start of 2017. And, you know, just got involved through with friends that were that were playing around with it and fortunate in terms of time in that it really got on at the beginning of what started to be, you know, a first of, of probably, you know, second or third in terms of the broader scheme of things, but one of the big um, rides or booms of, of crypto during 2017. And then unfortunately, you know, the, the bust of 2018 from there. But I suppose, you know, I, I sort of stuck around after, after that, after that bust sort of period, as I, I sort of saw, you know, a, a lot of the, I guess the technology that was sort of being sort of envisioned in some of the white papers that these uh, cryptocurrencies that came through the initial coin offering phase were, you know, sort of designed to to try and build, and saw some really interesting tech here, and was and was really you know, struck and attracted to what what could be built here. So stuck around during that period, which was you know as it is now, or as it, is now termed sort of that crypto winter period where everyone sort of sort of rushed away and prices dropped, you know, 85, 90%, which is naturally quite quite scary in the scheme of things. But stuck around during that time, we really start to see these these companies and projects start to execute on their their roadmap and start to build what they were designed to do. And that kept me quite involved. You know, I was, I was quite involved with a couple of communities in within the projects and themselves. And you know, that's that interest and yeah, that excitement still continued to grow as time went on, and we sort of see ourselves in a period where you know, a lot of these good sort of projects have started to come into fruition. Obviously, a lot have you know, fallen by the wayside and just not executed on what they were designed to do. So there's undoubtedly been a lot of projects that have gone bad, but the good projects have really you know maintained a, a lot of interest, and you know some have begin to fall into this bucket known as you know the decentralized finance or DeFi sector that we're now sort of calling it. But I suppose I've tried been following this as, as more of a passion, more of an interest, research and investing in the space outside of work hours. You know, I come from more a traditional finance sort of background aside from, you know, other backgrounds in crypto, whether it be sort of a, a computer science background or engineering background or, you know, just a, a passionate techie, you know, very early on. I suppose my sort of traditional background is uh, within sort of the, the asset consulting space and, and investment research area. So I recently finished up from Frontier where I spent about two and a half years there and was doing both client consulting side, whether it be portfolio construction or you know, asset class configurations, as well as from a research side doing fund manager due diligence as well. So I spent two and a half years really learning how these big motherships, these big institutional investors construct their portfolios and deploy capital and the like. Um, so it was very, very useful, very valuable, um, very valuable experience. And then I suppose prior to that in, in a formal life before Frontier, I was at PricewaterhouseCoopers for about 10 years. And that was in a mix of, of roles, whether it be 
you know, a specialist tax area or a more general tax area. And then towards the back end of that 10 years, it was within the private wealth division within PricewaterhouseCoopers. And that sort of then moved through to, to Frontier. And here's where I find myself now making the full-time jump into, into crypto as, a, as an independent investment analyst. And I really made that decision because I wanted to capture a lot of the, uh, I guess, the, the growth and the innovation that was going on, especially in the DeFi sector. And I just as with a full-time job trying to do this after hours, you know, your bandwidth is quite limited, both the, the quantity of hours you can put into the research and the investing side, but also, you know, your, your mental bandwidth to be able to absorb information. So if I really wanted to to jump on board with the growth and really try and cover as much as I could with regards to the innovation that was going on in DeFi, I really had to take a bit of a risk and a bit of a leap of faith into, you know, committing to this full-time. So I guess one of the biggest things that, that I always think about is there's a lot of people moving into crypto more broadly and you can yeah. look at every different new coin that's been put to market of late. I think there's over 5,000 coins that are available uh, trading all the time, huge amounts of volatility. So yeah. it's captured a lot of people's attention. I yeah. don't know if it's if it's caught the attention of Instos really in the Australian market. Globally, there's a few people that are playing on it. You've yeah. you've made a pretty clear decision to sort of move away from crypto as such and talk more around DeFi more specifically. I'm yeah. just curious around how do you see those two as being sort of separate but connected? Yeah, sure. So I think, you know, the crypto industry more broadly, as you say, is, is so diverse, you know, as you said, you know, around 5,000 different coins. The, the idiosyncrasies between them all is just, you know, phenomenal in terms of what one coin does versus one coin versus versus the other. Now, typically, sort of the headline, you know, household names will will capture a lot of the the attention of the media and really sense and become quite sensationalised. Whether it's the the large drawdown we had within Bitcoin or uh, more recently, or whether it's you know Elon Musk sending a, a rogue tweet that is in, invested in it at the start of the year and then you know sort of going a little bit backwards on his words with regards to, you know, Tesla not being, Tesla not accepting Bitcoin as, as payments. So, you know, it's, and especially like within that, there's other ones like Dogecoin and, and the like that, again, are these sort of household somewhat names, but very sensationalized and, and really carry a lot of speculative value. And I suppose I, I try to come at it when it sort of we get to talking about the DeFi sector is is really trying to you know apply a little bit more of a fundamental approach to thinking about cryptocurrencies. And there's I suppose that's where we sort of arrive into this this DeFi sector. And this is what's really got my attention. Where I think there's actually quite a lot of interesting activity that's going on is because that tokens and protocols that are starting to get captured in this DeFi sector are starting to you know, gain quite a lot of adoption, whether it's users starting to use the protocols or, you know, people who are providing capital into the into the protocol is starting to are starting to do that more more frequently now, as well as these protocols starting to generate cash flow. So when you start talking about cash flow and when it comes to these protocols uh, generating that type of, of revenue, you could start to build a case for starting to throw a little bit more of an intrinsic or fundamental value on particular cryptocurrencies and particular protocols, aside from the, the typical speculation, which is sort of surrounded and, and to be honest, is, is quite a, you know, a, a, a blanket concept when it comes to crypto and investing in crypto. 
how do you, how do you then think about the the mania that is within these crypto assets, and then you start to yep. talk about the value that sits within these protocols? I, yep. I guess for most people, they don't understand how how value basically attracts. How does the value basically grow within the pot- the protocol, or is it within yep. a particular token? How does it how does that value you know grow grow alongside that the growth of that underlying uh, system? Yeah. Yes, yeah, it's, it's it's a good point trying to you know dissect and 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 draw the the parallels between that value and and the network itself. And I suppose it sort of comes back to you know sort of the the definition of or the sort of loose definition. And and again, that that's a static definition. It's quite evolved in the actual space. But I suppose you know it comes back to that de- definition of DeFi, which is you know essentially taking traditional financial services. And conducting those financial services services in a decentralized manner. So it's taking out your third parties, you're taking out any intermediaries that are typically used with regards to you know, typical financial services, whether it be derivatives, whether it be you know, payment networks, whether it be you know, short-term credit networks, uh, short-term credit markets, or typical exchanges or market maker environments. And you're taking these quite primitive financial services and putting them in this space where you know you can essentially operate in a peer-to-peer framework and use the blockchain as this governance network to bring all parties together. Now, within that stems from a couple of key pillars, which is this idea of you know, having economic incentives, having smart contracts, and having a blockchain that is used to influence user behavior and attract users and, and keep them, uh, I suppose, in, engaged in such a way that you can create quite a sustainable and living and breathing ecosystem. And within within that, you get to this idea or this iteration of financial services relationship, which is a peer-to-contract or a peer-to-pool type of function where a user can rock up to a protocol that's offering a particular financial service and they can transact peer as a peer to a pool and affects that particular financial service that they're they're getting or they're they're wanting to get and they can pay a fee for that service and in exchange they'll obviously receive the service but that fee that you know gets taken away by a particular smart contract will then go to you know the people who are sitting in aggregate on the pool side providing that capital can i pause you there how does that actually work because if i think about it from a a visa or mastercard sort of system they provide uh, a network, a payment system, they get a fee as the, as the system works, right? Now, if I think about the the crypto blockchain style approach, which is this decentralized uh, market or network that's been created, how does the value then get attributed to the participants? Sure. So I think it, it comes down to, I suppose, sort of the, when you're comparing it to, to Visa and versus a blockchain, they're similar in the sense that they're both operating what is a ledger system or a database system and they'll whether it's you know visa on their end they'll do the the matching between accounts say if you send you know funds from one account one pay uh, one visa account to another or even in paypal as another example your one paypal to another paypal account it's essentially a ledger system that you're going you know minus in in one account and plus in the other in terms of a debit and credit now in the the blockchain environment it's essentially the same thing except rather than one company conducting the ledger you're using a number of you're using a number of individual computers that have their own ledger who are working together to ensure that ledger is correct so when a transaction 
goes minus in one, say, Ethereum blockchain wallet and and send it to another Ethereum blockchain wallet, that minus and that plus is agreed upon by all computers that are maintaining that, uh, that blockchain. Now, where the economic incentives comes into play is that why would a, a node or a computer want to manage or assist in verifying the network? Well, when you send a transfer similar to PayPal, you'll have to pay a little bit of a transaction fee, which will go to PayPal or Visa, and that's their fee for conducting the transaction. Similar in a blockchain example, where you will pay a fee as to in order to send a transaction, and that will go in an aggregate fashion to the computers that are running or verifying the blockchain. Doesn't that sound a little bit more inefficient than a, than a simple system of, of Visa where there's just one party? It seems like you've got multiple parties you know, trying to to satisfy the node, make, making sure that all the nodes are acting you know, in accordance with this blockchain. I mean, we, we talk about sort of like the inefficiency side and, and you're right. When, when you start, when you've got just the one system, you know, in Visa or PayPal's example, that's managing the one ledger, you know, quick. It's in one, out the other type stuff. You know, and the in a blockchain example, what you can see is you can find blockchains with a small number of computers that are managing the network. And that in itself can be quite quick when all of them agree on, you know, the particular transactions that are flowing through. And the more computers you add to the network, naturally it becomes a little bit you know, slower where you've got a large number of computers trying to agree on on everything. But I suppose where the, the benefits start to play through is where you're, you know, there's there's payment networks where, which are going international and you're having to, to deal with, you know, say a financial institution in, say, Australia and a financial institution in, say, the US or Europe and using, you know, PayPal, you know, to sort of come over the top and affect that transaction. You've also got a SWIFT system in, in the background as well and is international payments can you know, take two to three days or so to to arrive or deposit in um, another beneficiary's account. But in cryptocurrency land or in that blockchain land, being able to affect that transfer can be a lot quicker. It can be a matter of minutes. Is it a fair is it a fair assumption that some of the benefits that has come through this ability to be efficient in moving money around? around the world is really almost a regulatory arbitrage piece because Visa and MasterCard and PayPal have got a lot of regulations around them. Blockchain yep. still, uh, or these types of uh, cryptos are, are still very much in their infancy that yeah, yeah. there's a, a regulatory benefit for, for them at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a great point. And I mean, it's, um, I suppose one of the risks more broadly with, you know, investing in the crypto space is that there is this element of regulatory risk or, or regulatory arbitrage, whichever you want to, that you're involving yourself in because the tech has been has been so innovative so quickly that it's actually leading regulation at the moment and regulation is is catching up but because the innovation is so quick at this stage there is an element of of catch up that regulators are playing and trying to work out well how can we regulate this environment is there also a challenge around sort of trust in the networks in terms of their scale so as these as these systems start to scale, the amount of nodes that need to grow is it you know is there an increasing number of uh, parties that you need to be able to main, maintain style, a scale or you know are there efficiencies that come from the growth of these types of networks or is it just we we sort of hit a, a plateau in efficiency on these things? Yeah, it's a great point. I mean the the household name being Ethereum in, in terms of scalability and and capacity is you know within their sort of. I guess number one priority at this stage because they were 
you know, one of the one of the first public blockchains that is now, a, as I said, a household name. A lot of you know, decentralized applications are, are being built on it. There's a lot of you know, users, developers, you know, interacting with the blockchain itself, and it is starting to get to a level which is just at capacity. You know, and and how we can measure capacities is the level of fees that these individual computers that are managing the blockchain, the the size of the fees that they're needing to charge in order to compensate them for the computing power that they're giving up in order to maintain the level of transactions that are being you know transferred and, and transacted on 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 the blockchain. So we're we're pretty much at that level in terms of you know maxing out capacity and, and looking for scalability solutions at this stage. Now there's a, a number of sort of enhancements that are being looked at, which are known as sort of layer two sort of additions or enhancements, which basically uh, are attempting to speed up the process and being able to like essentially conduct your own mini transactions on this layer two and then settle the the net sort of transfer on the actual layer one blockchain being being Ethereum. Dive into the the weeds a little bit, but I suppose the point is is that you know the, the levels of transactions are at capacity, but there are things like layer two as well as Ethereum going through their 2.0, you know, change of consensus algorithm that is addressing these scalability issues because otherwise it's always going to be just a, a backyard project type of tech and not trying to get to where it's intended to be, which is a mainstream public settlement layer. So I'm trying to sort of get my head around where the value is accretive to, you know, is the value yeah. accretive to the actual token itself or the value of the network? Like yep. I guess for a lot of people when they're buying crypto assets they feel that there's this excitement around the crypto asset and that's where the value sits but is the value really sitting in the power of the network and the amount mm. of transactions that push through that network yeah it's a great point and i suppose we're just talking about a theorem then but sort of diving deeper into the the DeFi sector where we're starting to see a lot of these protocols generating cash flow you know there's there's, there's typically tokens attached to these networks and each token will vary in terms of the characteristic on what that a token holder is entitled to, whether it's, you know, governance voting rights over to with regards to how a protocol is governed or whether you're entitled to, say, a, a portion of the fees that are generated from that particular protocol. So it's really, you know, dissecting at a token level, what are the characteristics of that particular token? Because you can draw this distinction where it's, well, we see a lot of value you know, whether it be volume being generated in a decentralized exchange or, you know, a, a level of, say, assets under management per se that's being locked into these particular protocols. So the actual protocol itself is being used and generating cash flow, but those fees are just paid from users to the capital providers within the network. So you can have a token, which there's tokens out there, which are purely just governance tokens. They are just designed to, you know, make decisions on the direction of a particular protocol. Now, what's interesting is that these protocol, these tokens, even though they're just governance rights, can have quite some substantial value. And you sort of question, well, what is the fundamental intrinsic value to these particular tokens? Because if it's not generating cash flow, or well, is it just, I guess, speculation? And this is where, to your point, you start to dissect, well, a protocol itself can have a lot of users, have a lot of capital within it, and the fees generated can go directly to the to the, uh, the capital providers, and you can have tokens which are associated with the protocol. But you know, in terms of 
actually accruing that value that's created by the protocol can just be non-existent, but it can also have tokens which are you know, entitled to particular fees so that you've got this concept where the protocol creates value and the token can then you know, accrue that value as well. I guess one of the things that probably for the audience would like to hear about is what sort of real economy examples are there, you know, where DeFi can really be applied maybe today? You know, is it is it yep. sort of around lending and borrowing? Is that, that to me seems to be the place that's of most interest, particularly around yep. trade finance, where there's a constant need to mm-hmm. have smart contracts to track things as they go through the process to make sure that the underlying collateral is there. Is there other options or other you know, um, applications that you can think of? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So there's uh, there's another a subset of um, of DeFi which is in this decentralized exchange subset, and within this decentralized exchange subset, you've got a pure peer to peer order book type of approach, but you've also got what's known as an automatic market maker approach as well, which is essentially quite a disruptive version of your traditional market maker um, environment. And if we think of some of the the high level characteristics about a traditional market maker, they'll hold stock or liquidity on on their own book in order to to build a market. And anyone wanting to transact through that particular market maker will incur a a fee for for doing so. And that fee will be somewhat commensurate, almost commensurate with the the size of of, how much someone's willing to transact relative to the size of liquidity that that particular market maker is holding. If, if that particular trader or user is looking to trade quite a substantial portion of the order book or the, or the liquidity of that particular market maker, well, the market maker is going to you know, translate that back to a quite a substantial spread or slippage that they're going to have to pass on to that particular trader. So casting that back to this automatic market maker idea, you can essentially take out the market maker as an inter- intermediary or a third party, and you replace that with people with excess capital that are willing to pull capital into the network. And then you've got a, a user or a trader that has, can trade through that protocol and through those liquidity pools, whether they want to trade out of Ethereum and into another cryptocurrency or, or vice versa. And it's a similar idea. If that trader wants to you know, trade quite a large portion relative to the the liquidity within those liquidity pools or the the algorithms within this particular network will adjust the fee uh, accordingly. And in that example, will incur quite high, a high slippage in order to compensate for them taking quite a large portion of those liquidity pools. And then that fee essentially goes back to those people providing liquidity. And you've, what you've done then is you've turned your excess capital into now an income generating or income yielding asset. This is all governed by you know, smart contracts and and code. So there's no third party or no intermediary that's governing this process between a user and a pool of assets. One of the other places that uh, I guess comes to mind when people think about crypto is is stable coins. How how do they fit in with the whole system? Yeah, so stable coins are you know an essential part of the the broader I suppose system from from two areas. And the first one is just from a a payment channel or a payment vehicle that is you know with with incredibly lower volatility compared to you know what bitcoin was designed to do as this this peer-to-peer decentralized network so having stable coins in the market is is very useful and they've seen incredible growth in terms of the 
I suppose, the amount of stable coins uh, within the market themselves. And it's also used as just a sort of this, this low volatility asset to you know, liquidate into if you're, say, a, a trader or you're holding a position that you want to sell out of, you can sell into uh, stable coins as that, that low volatility source of, of asset. Now, stable coins is interesting because it comes in sort of two key forms, a centralized version and a decentralized version. And the centralized version is basically you know, a little bit of a, a crossbreed or a hybrid between the real world and, and crypto, where you've got a, a third party, which will you know, take people's deposits. And, and in a one-to-one ratio, they'll issue a stable coin in sort of the, the cryptocurrency world. And they'll manage the liquidity and the buying and selling in order to maintain that or make sure that that peg remains at, at uh whatever that it's pegged against, whether it's a US dollar or a hard commodity. Now, you've also got these um, decentralized type of stable coins, which are basically, again, coming back to a network protocol, is basically governing a process to maintain the peg of a stable coin, whether it's pegged against a fair currency or it's pegged against a, a hard commodity. And the interesting part about the decentralized stable coins is that these in terms of adoption these are being used at the moment we're starting to see quite strong traction with regards to countries that are currently going through high inflation periods so especially in south america when we're talking about venezuela we're talking about argentina you know, there's decentralized stable coins which are pegged to the us dollar which are now being used as a form of you know store of value for for residents and, and citizens domiciled in those countries to buy these these assets or these decentralized stablecoins and use them as a hedge against inflation and sovereign risk and the like. We've got to touch on some of the risks that are within this space. I think yeah. one of the things that's really fascinating is you mentioned at the start your previous role at Frontier around sort of talking with institutional asset owners and so forth. I think it's been a pretty big leap for many of them to think about crypto and even some of these new developments that have come in. And then if you think back to the history and the development of crypto assets historically, particularly around Bitcoin, it was the ability for these uh, coins obviously to be created, have some semi-privacy attached to them, have a bit of a, a decentralized approach to them. But now as we keep moving through the process, it feels as though it's becoming more and more institutionalized. Um, and so those benefits that were there and the excitement alongside a lot of these things is now starting to wear off because there's now more institutional players coming in. There's now a lot of custodial services coming in. It's becoming much more sophisticated. You know, how do you think about the risks of institutional players coming into that market and how that could potentially change um, this, this whole space? Yeah, so I think um, I mean it's 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 a really interesting point, and and this is will be part of you know, a bit of a research paper that I want to look into you know, over my my next journey. It's really starting to you know characterize these assets from I guess an institutional landscape or a traditional finance landscape. Like for for Bitcoin as an example versus DeFi, you know where do these things sit in terms of a a total portfolio perspective. So. You know, Bitcoins, it originally was issued to be a peer-to-peer network, you know, but because of its its extreme volatility, it, it makes it quite difficult for me to say, well, I'm going to pay with Bitcoin or I'm going to settle a house or settle a car, whatever it is in Bitcoin. If it takes a couple of days to, or if it, if it goes through overnight or, or whatever it does, it will, you know, undoubtedly change. If it drops, you know, 5%, 10%, well, there's obviously someone who's got to make up that 5 10%. 
but it started to morph into this new narrative, which is this, which is this store of, of value, where it's basically this, this currency that sits on top of, it's not governed by any one central bank or any one sovereign. So it kind of sits and is a bit of a hedge across sovereign, sovereign risk. But what, I'm, what I see personally at this stage is that the characteristics of this particular asset class is it's, it's still you know, such a speculative asset rather than a hedge. And we go through periods where this thing can go down you know, 50%. Like the drawdown, the drawdown characteristics are phenomenal or you know, the, the actual you know, daily volatility or monthly volatility can be magnitudes higher than you know, traditional asset classes, whether it be you know, listed equities or, you know, or property or the like. Now, what's interesting from a um, from an institutional landscape, which I think you know brings a lot of insight, is being able to shed light in terms of understanding. Well, what is this asset class? What are the characteristics of this asset class? And start to sort of reduce, I guess, the information asymmetry that's currently present in the broader asset class, so people can you know start to see some predictability. And start to then, you know, look to include it in, or some more from an education point of view, start to work out where this fits from a, a total portfolio perspective. Then you can look at it from another angle, which comes to sort of the flows, so the flows of capital. So as institutional money starts to come into the market, you know, we start to get, you know, a level of of mainstream. So there's a lot more liquidity now coming into coming into the actual asset class itself. So undoubtedly we're going to have these peaks and troughs of booms and busts, but you know, on the long term, those are going to start to start to iron out. And we get to a point where a lot of these characteristics we're currently seeing now, whether it's you know major drawdown characteristics or you know relatively high volatility, start to to dampen away because it does become a more of a mainstream asset. And I think that's where the institutional capital coming in can really, you know, contribute to that becoming what I think it's intended to be, which is that that hedge of sovereign sovereign risk down the track. It's an interesting approach to looking at it, which is the hedge to sovereign risk. These these uh, institutional capital uh, pools, particularly in Australia, are almost de facto sovereign players anyway. So it's yeah. a real real um, dichotomy there. You're trying to solve. Yeah. For. <laughs> but yeah. but I'm but I'm curious around you know for for institutional investors as they think about crypto style assets or the networks yeah. you know, what what's best for them to sort of think about in terms of where do they look look with you know what do they look at first as yeah. a way to get maybe exposure to this type of market do they look at these new types of networks understand the way these networks are working is it around yeah. particular tokens that pay a return for example you know where should they look yeah yeah it's a good point so i the way the way I see it is, is basically you know, you know, Bitcoin and DeFi, and obviously there's a lot of other stuff going on there. But I, I suppose they're the ones that you can sort of start to put a little bit more of a, a rational, you know, if that's maybe that's a bit too uh, too concrete, very loose rational sort of thesis behind. You know, when it comes to when it comes to DeFi, you're able to start seeing cash flows, spit off protocols. You're starting to see tokens that are entitled to these cash flows. So. You know, when it when it comes to you know some of these you know traditional finance experts, especially in the equity space, that are conducting market comparable valuation or you know discounted cash flows, you can start to you know loosely apply these valuation methodologies to some of these tokens that are starting to generate cash as well. So it's much less of a finger in the air or much less of a, a dart the dartboard when you start you know focusing attention on tokens that are generating cash flow, especially within this DeFi space. And this is the 
DeFi is essentially the hunting ground for these you know, types of assets that are tokens entitled to cash flow. So I think from that point, that's your that's your starting point. You can have, you know, Bitcoin in there, but you've got to understand the characteristics that if you think it's a, a hedge against sovereign risk at the, at the moment, well, it's in my opinion at the moment, it's currently not there, even though I think it can get there. But given the great drawdown characteristics and the volatility, as long as you, you, know, you know that it's a speculative asset rather than a, a hedge, you can size it appropriately and like, you can view it that way, but there's the Bitcoin example, but then also focusing on the cash flow to the tokens in the DeFi example as well. That'd be the best way to look at it, I think. All right. That's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for your time today, James. Absolute pleasure, Alex. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.